Thanks, guys, for, for coming. There's um, some people from last night. That's good. Some people actually returned. <laughs> and there's some new people. It's great to see um, you here. Some familiar faces, which is really good. Now, uh, that, was, that was a bit of a clip. It, uh, it looked at some of the things we looked at last night. But um, we covered some of that, but I covered uh, some of some other stuff, some of the different responses. We went through really quick. We crammed in a lot of stuff. And uh, we're sort of moving on from a bit of that. Um, and just, uh, just one thing I mentioned last night is um, I, I talked about how this is the problem of evil. Uh, the, these responses called theodicies. And then you've also had a bit of reaction against them, uh, anti-theodicy. And that is where people have said, well, you know, some of these explanations are almost part of the problem of evil themselves. Because when someone's suffering and you come and give a philosophical explanation, how much are you really helping them? And I have some sympathy with that, although I don't quite totally go along with it, because remember last night I said, um, people still ask those questions and they want some sort of a response. But I I have some sympathy to that. And I I veered away from too complex complex of philosophical argument. And I made the point that evil was primarily a practical problem. And, and yet, fool that I am, I am going to delve into this almost impossible to, to solve thing with some theory, but the whole goal is, is practical in the end. I uh, just want to point that out. And we looked at different uh, theodicies, um, you know, explaining things that God's got a greater good for whatever evil occurs. He's doing it because he's going to bring out some good. And we looked at the advantages and problems of that, that God has, has created a soul-making environment. He wants to uh, help people develop. But then we said, well, you know, that happens for some people, but the world also crushes. It's a soul-crushing environment for a lot of other people. Uh, we looked at the finite God solution. Um, they referred to a few. But God actually can't stop evil because he's not powerful enough. And there's uh, some people take that point of view. And then finally we came to one, and I briefly talked about it last night, and that is the free will defense. And it's, it's the one that holds the most promise, but it's also got some limitations. So briefly, very briefly, it is God desires a world where he has intelligent creatures who are capable of loving him and each other, learning, forming relationships. But to do that, he, of course, needed to give them freedom. Freedom was, was actually a precondition. And with freedom comes some risk. Now, we, we're going to look a bit more at, at that. But there are some limitations. And I won't be able to address all of them. But one is, well, what that addresses moral evil. Remember, we talked about moral evil and natural evil. Um, but what about natural evil? So moral evil is the wrong choices we make to hurt each other. Natural evil is like an earthquake. So how does the free will defense... And I, I don't know if I'll really get into that a lot uh, just now. What about the scope and scale of evil? Okay, someone can make a wrong choice, but look at the evil in the world. It's of such a staggering magnitude. How, how can just that someone can make a, a wrong choice explain that? Um, is it really worth it? Is another question people ask. Or how is it that if, if freedom is, is part of God's concern and he wants to maintain that, but how is it that he allows one person's freedom to impinge on or eliminate another person's freedom. So this is actually brought up. 
this is the free will defense. Well, but why is it God allows that person's freedom and that person misuses it and takes away someone else's freedom? So as you can see, there's, there's still a lot of challenges. And then what I see as the, the biggest challenge is free will, the free will defense, is placed in these other ways of thinking that nullify it. So um, the greater good theodicy. Um, free will does help explain why God can allow evil. But then if you say that every evil God specifically allows in order to produce a good, well, you don't even need the free will defense. And, and what's it actually doing? Or the deterministic ones. That is, God is in control of everything. And everything happens because God has a blueprint, basically. This is a very strong predestination sort of idea. That eliminates any value you get out of the free will defense. And then say you believe that um, God allows free will, but if people reject him, he will punish them forever in hell. And, and people have said the problem, the problem of hell makes the problem of evil impossible to solve because what's happened is God has made pain and suffering and evil eternal. He's guaranteed that they will never, ever end. So... What advantages of even using the free will defense? Um, so somehow we've almost got to free the free will defense and find a, a proper home for it. And, and I want to look a, a bit um, at that. And we've also um, got to do something. We somehow have to keep, this is going to sound strange, but we've got to keep the evilness of evil and yet overcome it. Because some of those other explanations, they, they, what they're trying to say is, hey, evil isn't so bad because da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But somehow we've got to have an explanation that says, no, evil is evil, and it doesn't um, try and find an alternative value for it, but somehow overcomes evil. This is, this is all pretty difficult stuff to sort of do. Um, so... They actually try and make the problem of evil not a problem, but we, it's, uh, it's ironic. We need to keep it a problem um, so we can uh, really solve it. Now, I'm going to look at, um, I'm going to present what I think is the most promising one uh, just soon. Um, but I want to say this um, pain and suffering and evil is, um, is so extraordinary. It's so out of the ordinary in its scale and its magnitude and its effect in our world. We should expect the answer that most adequately deals with it to be extraordinary. It, it should be almost a little bit out of this world. True? And, and some of the other explanations we looked at last night, they were a bit, they, they just sort of solved it a little too, too easily and, and yet never actually dealt with it. So, um, the, the actual answer, I think, is quite extraordinary, and I want to look at that. Okay, what do I think is the most promising response to the problem of evil? Let's see if I can... So, we're up to the second talk. Um, oh, see, I just uh, explained a bit of this. <laughs> Believe it or not, it's war. I believe that the most promising explanation to the problem of even evil is that there is a war going on. Now, not a, co a conventional two-dimensional war, you know, sort of like over geographical uh, areas or something, but a multi-dimensional conflict. This is a strange answer, but it's a really compelling one. Um, 
the world has so much evil because there is a war going on. Um, the world looks like a war zone because it is a war zone. And th- this explains the radical nature of the suffering and the pain and the evil that we see. You see, in a war zone, you have not just one will. So it's not just that there's God and he's all-powerful and he just does what he wants and his will is always done. A war says there's opposition, there's other wills, there's other little centers of power and that these are competing against God. So freedom has been misused, so it utilizes the free will defense. And and this has led to conflict. Now, um, what this means is, in a war zone, are you surprised by suffering? If you were there, luckily we're not. Would you be surprised? You wouldn't. You see, in a war, you expect tragedy. You expect evil. You expect suffering. In other words, it, and, and so now when you look at the world, you go, okay, if it is a war zone, evil starts to make sense. Well, evil doesn't make sense, but all this pain and suffering, why it's going on, um, starts to make a bit of sense even if we're surprised at the extent of the um, suffering. So the war is not a conventional war. It's a war against God, and God is being um, opposed. But it's, it's a very, very, very complicated war, unlike anything we've seen, um, because it takes place on multiple dimensions. So it is not just about human beings. It's not just about human beings or free choice as helpful as the free will defense is. It's not just about God willing and choosing things. It's not just about the physical level of reality. Rather, it's a cosmic war. And, and what it means is that if, if there's a war at a cosmic level, then all the levels underneath are somehow affected and involved by it. So it's heavenly as well as earthly. It's spiritual and physical and social and moral. As we'll see, it's angelic and human. And basically what it means is there's a war going on and, and, and basically there's two sides but um, the, the, the complicated part is, in one side of this war, and this is the side which has chosen not to take the root of, of um, sin or evil, there's actually harmony. And within this side, there's actually no pain and suffering. And it's because it has, it's the original uh, state of creation, and it had a natural unity and harmony in, because it was centered in God. And so, because it was centered in God, everything was unified. So this is actually one side of the conflict. But with the other side of the conflict, what has happened? It's lost its center and its unity. And what that means is, um, it's not just that this side is opposing the other side. This side, by its very nature, forms multiple conflicts. Do you see what I'm saying? So there's, there's an overall conflict, two sides opposing each other. But the second sphere, which has fallen into um, sin or evil, is characterized by multiple wars. And uh, so, so what I mean um, by that is in this second sphere, and this is the one we're in, okay? This is the one you and I are in. We're not on that other side. Maybe we want to be there. But we're actually in this one. And so the war... And the conflict breaks out, and it's replicated in all dimensions. So you get um, conflict between people. You get conflict between families, within families. You get conflict between any group in this world, a class, an ethnic group, uh, a city, a nation, a region. They eventually start 
And we, we see this everywhere forming. You get conflicts between nature and us, the original stewards. So there's actually conflict between, and, and there's a conflict in nature. You observe nature, and there's, there's beauty and everything, but you know, it's at war. It, it, it's just a, a place of great cruelty. Um, so, you see, what, what happens is creation is such a finely balanced, interconnecting, interlocking unity that when you introduce, say, a principle of sin or evil or self-seeking, what happens is the unity goes, but all the connections remain. So then inside, um, all this activity, selfish activity, evil activity, has systemic effects. And I I mean, I hope you're following this. But so, um, you know, we talk about the butterfly effect. Well, evil activities in this environment have like a butterfly effect. They can just develop and, and grow into phenomenal um, sort of um, pain and suffering uh, as a result. And so we're, attract, we're, we're trapped in the second, second um, opposing side of the conflict with a dizzying complex state um, of multi-dimensional, multi-leveled conflict and war. And I think this is the most promising explanation um, to what we see. So conventional war, like I mentioned, you know, ISIS, <laughs> the Ukraine, Afghanistan, um, and then what the crime we see in the streets and everything, and even stuff that we do that we, we regret, is symptomatic of a deep, deep level conflict, which even is happening at a, a spiritual and a, a cosmic um, level. But that's the background one beneath everything. We usually, and most people, just see the foreground one. You know, when we have an argument with someone or we, we see, turn on the news and, you know, someone's murdered someone. That's the visible thing. But it's, it's not the root cause. Um, so uh, what I want to do is a look a little bit at this idea of cosmic, cosmic warfare theodicy and, and what it does. And what we'll do... <clears throat> is um, I'll look at two, two today, just um, in this talk, the relationship between warfare and freedom. We'll develop that a little bit more. And then the relationship between war and moral controversy. And we'll see this is a really important thing. But first, just a brief outline of the biblical affirmation of this um, cosmic war. And this is where, you know, I said the, the explanation should be extraordinary. This is part of the extraordinary element uh, for, for a lot of people, especially modern people, to look at. But basically, the Scripture affirms that God created the world and he created a certain class of beings, angels, a perfect being, a being actually made to live not, not so much in our world, but in the very presence of God. So a, a, quite an astonishing sort of uh, creation. And it says that mysteriously, one of these beings turned from God and induced um, a rebellion. Now, in Scripture, uh, and I can't get into all... all uh, into a lot of detail, but under the under the figure or the of certain human kings, Scripture actually talks about this initial rebellion, the thing that 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 sort of sparked off this uh, cosmic war. And um, I've got here a, a text from Isaiah, and it's talking about the king of Babylon. But then it, it sort of breaks into really extreme cosmic language, and and in the New Testament, Jesus actually refers to this to talk about. Satan or the devil. So, because he, he makes that illusion, we can we know this is actually talking about um, Satan. But um, it says, "How you are fallen from heaven, O Daystar or 
That's where we get the old word Lucifer from, you know, the uh, light bearer. Son of the dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. And this is what he said. He said, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I'll set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. This is, if you study the rest of the scripture, this is cosmic langu- language actually describing God's dwelling place. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Okay, here's the initial uh, insight into the internal workings of this creature. Now, notice, um, just here it says, you said in your heart. Now, I can say things in my heart. They might not always match what I say through my mouth to you. Okay. So, it's not saying that this is what he said so much to other people, but this is what he said to himself. Um, However, he uh, went about in more complex ways disseminating these ideas. And then there's this uh, passage from Ezekiel, and it describes, uh, under the, the figure of the king of Tyre, um, a quite incredible creature here. It says, this says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were an anointed guardian cherub, which is like an angel who, who's at the very, in the very presence of God. You were blameless in your ways. In other words, you were perfect. You were not created evil from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. You sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. Your heart was proud because of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. And I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. So, um, Here is a description of this original rebel. And uh, so, summing up, a very high-ranking angel, uh, guardian cherub, originally perfect, abounding in profound ability, wisdom, and beauty, nevertheless corrupted his gifts by pride. And then he sinned and rebelled against God. Uh, He desired more and more power, even power on par with God. And, And then we know from other verses, which we won't get into, that he led... Um, other creatures, other angels into this rebellion, and then eventually human beings. But before that, a war followed. He was kicked out of uh, heaven, and and he induced human beings, and the rebellion spread. Now, it's it's a pretty big sort of idea. And of course, um, the idea of a devil or a a Satan or a fallen angel uh, is is not something modern people will, will naturally warm to. But I just want to put a few thoughts out there. Um, one, we're not talking about the comic idea of a, um, a little guy with horns and a tail. Okay, Rather, we're talking about, the Bible presents him as a sophisticated opponent of God who deliberately tries to obscure and hide his existence or conceal its true nature. Okay, So it's, he's not out there. He's working in a deceptive manner. Um, he acts hiddenly or covertly um, under different disguises. And he tries to picture himself even as a force for good. So, you know, Scripture talks about he comes as, a, as a, a minister or a servant of righteousness. That's how he presents himself, or an angel of light. Um, and so, 
the, the idea that there is a you know a someone who's completely de- a supernatural being who's completely devoted themselves to evil people think can't believe that but he doesn't want um, he, he comes in a, in a more uh, attractive sort of light um, but the other point I would put is this you know the sheer degree and magnitude and extremity and gratuity of evil in the world makes it plausible that there's a spiritual stimulus or catalyst or source. So, for example, if to explain World War II, right, you really need a Hitler, then what does it take to explain the, the evil we see in our world? And a supernatural source or stimulus makes uh, quite a lot of sense. Um, the interesting thing is the, the parts of the Bible that witness most strongly to a supernatural evil are the ones that are, that are historically attested the best, and that's the Gospels. And the most singular, significant figure in human history is Jesus. No one doubts his, his, his historicity. And yet, he actually spoke more about Satan than anyone else. So, he's, he's, he's clearly, Jesus is clearly lucid, even if you're a non-believer. He's clearly lucid and intelligent, and, and yet, he... This is an integral part of what he said. So you can't actually split the two um, apart. And if you think God is rational, then um, a rational possibility, a devil is as well. And, and, and just um, otherwise, one has to assume that the world is purely matter and material. And you've got to exclude the very possibility of the spiritual. And that's a really arbitrary assumption. Um, okay, so I just wanted to, to put that out there. Um, and, and so we're, what we're doing here is we're looking at the free will defense, but now it's in a bigger context, um, uh, a spiritual context. <clears throat> okay, now uh, what I want to do is, is, is there's a certain guy, uh, he's called Gregory Boyd. He's um, put a lot of work into looking at the free will defense in, in a cosmic uh, warfare theodicy. And he's come up with, um, once you, you accept the existence of Satan and that, six theses. And I just want to share you with them because they're um, quite, quite interesting. And, and so he starts off in the first part, this basically the free will defense. So what do we got here? His first one, now TWT, I, I should have changed that, but that's the Trinitarian Warfare Theodicy. Um, love must be freely chosen. So we, we sort of looked at that uh, last night. And he gives a, you know, forced love is an oxymoron. He gives a great illustration. It's called the perfect wife illustration. Now, does anyone here have the perfect wife? Scott? Thank you, Scott. I was hoping Scott would put his hand up there. But um, it, it, it's this. Imagine there's a computer chip. And so, don't, some of you guys don't get too excited. There, there isn't this uh, computer chip. But you could take it and you could place it into your wife's head. Or maybe even a woman you want to marry. And it would actually make her do whatever you wanted. You could totally control her behavior. And, get, get this, she would never know what's happening. That's the beauty of the chip. So she will actually think she's free the whole time. She will never think she's being controlled. And um, now, what would you think of this? Because she would exhibit the most loving behaviors uh, possible. But what, what would it be love? Also, would the husband ultimately, at the end of the day, find it fulfilling? Especially when he knew that he was actually controlling everything she was doing and every choice she was making. 
You see, in, a f in effect, she's become not only a puppet or a robot, but um, the, the husband is just having a relationship with himself. There's actually no other person there, is there? So love must be um, freely chosen. And some people say, oh, um, well, but it's God. Can't God automatically control people so they always do the, what is right? Well, God can do everything, but he can't do the absurd. So if something is, is logically impossible, he can't do it. So God can't create a square circle, can he? Because that's absurd by definition, a square and a circle. Yeah. So this is actually one of those things. God can't do it, which is um, quite profound. Okay, so that's his first one. His second one. No, where am I going? There. Love entails risk. And freedom entails risk. So if you, you, you allow freedom, you've got risk. Um, it's this pretty scary thought that even for God, there's risk. And what this means is God cannot meticulously control every single thing that everyone does. There's a risk that not only someone will do something wrong, but once they've started and introduced evil into the world, that lots of people will do stuff that is wrong. And if God wants to retain freedom, he cannot control everyone. So notice, this means there's a self-limitation on God. In other words, God's not finite. He, he's still all-powerful, but he's put a limit on himself because he wants love and freedom. He, he allows this um, to happen. And the alternative is not to create any creatures at all. And some people say that, oh, well, God should have never created everyone, anyone, because, you know, pain has come into the world. But you're actually willing your own non-existence, if you think that. And the really, now, it's, but sometimes things go so bad, people seriously consider this. But let me say this. If it is true, if God cannot create because there's a risk things that go wrong, will go wrong, do you know what that means? Evil wins merely by its possibility. In other words, it defeats God and it defeats our existence. Okay? So, um, let's look at the third one. What is happening here? Ah. Freedom and love entails that we are to some extent morally responsible for one another. And what this means is that risk is collective. You see, if we have freedom and if we have love, that requires actually that it's not just me and my own, that there's me and there's you, there's each other. And we all have influence over, over each other. That means we, it's a moral environment. That means morally I can misuse my influence. So we're all morally accountable. God cannot avoid this. He cannot, if, he, if he follows down this track, he cannot avoid um, this uh, possibility of influence. Um, but why is the risk so high if God does this? And he... Number four. The power to influence one another for the worst must be roughly proportionate to our power to influence for the better. Okay. Um, uh, another way of uh, putting this is that um, everything depends on how high God was aiming for in the first place. And there's an inversely proportional relationship. So if God was, it wasn't aiming very high, then if things go wrong, they're not going to go very wrong. But what if God was aiming for the, the highest, the highest creation, the one most like him, most glorious and beautiful? If he was, 
then the risk is that when it goes wrong, it goes really extraordinarily wrong. And this is built into that first decision um, to seek a creation of love. It's quite extraordinary um, when you when you realize this. Also, the, 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 the more talented or brilliant you are, the more capable of good but evil. So, you know, we're all of different uh, capacity, you know. But let's take some pretty extraordinary people in the world, um, some of the world leaders, people amazingly gifted, and on one side you've got a Nelson Mandela, but on the other side you've got an Adolf Hitler. Both were highly, highly talented people and capable of either more good or more evil in the world. But it also applies to groups, proportionality, right? So, one person making a wrong decision can do a lot that's bad. What about 10,000 people making the same wrong decision? So, Hitler, this, this helps explain Hitler. The fact is, Hitler could not cause World War II. He could not have um, started the Holocaust. But the fact is, lots of people joined with him. And so, the evil that resulted was of such a magnitude. And that's another part of this pr- principle of pr- proportionality. Okay, the um, fifth one. Now, <laughs> love entails a freedom that is within limits irrevocable. So, what this means is if God gives freedom, he must genuinely give it. He can't like give it and then, oh, I'm taking it away because you were about to do something wrong or you did one thing wrong. You see, if, if we are free, one of the things for it to, the freedom to be genuine is I have to have that freedom, but I also have, have to have time. I have to have temporal duration. And once God's given it, he, he has to give that if it's genuine. If other, he can take it away. He's got, he's got the power to, but it means he never gave freedom in the first place. And, that would, and if he takes it away, he actually ends our existence. So um, uh, it's irrevocable once given. This is part of the, the risk and the, and the cost of um, giving, giving away uh, freedom. And part of this, uh, he has to allow influence. You see, if God, um, even if God, say, doesn't just take freedom away and we all cease to exist, if he continually steps in, so, you know, you're, 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 you're about to punch that person and, and God always makes it so you can't hit them, you know. Um, or someone's got a gun and you shoot it at someone and the bullets turn into chocolate. And I, I'm sure if quite a few of you would be saying, shoot me, shoot me. Um, but what would happen is the world, as we know, it would actually collapse as a moral environment because nothing would be predictable anymore. You know, you, you could jump off a cliff and, and maybe an air balloon would appear down the bottom. We couldn't actually do science. We couldn't plan anything. We, we couldn't actually have relationships because the world would... God actually needs an environment where things are predictable and they follow in a lawful manner. And so it's irrevocable once given. And um, the last one, and it's cut off. <laughs> okay, but this is what it says. Our capacity, and, it, and this is an important one, because it's, it's, it's sounding pretty scary, isn't it? The risk of love. If you, if you look through all these things, you're thinking, man, maybe it's just going to totally get out of control for God. What was he doing? What was he thinking? Is there any way to tame this? Um, 
Our capacity to freely choose love is not endless. That's the last one. Our capacity to freely choose love is not endless. Now, this is in a couple of ways. One is just naturally the way God has created creation. It's not endless. And then as a backup, God himself will not allow it to go on. Okay? Forever. But the, the one we'll, I'll just talk about now is um, you cannot endlessly freely choose between good and evil, good and evil, and go between them. You see, the reality is that um, over time, we actually form characters. We take on characteristics. And we also, over time, form moral character. And eventually, um, moral character, is, when it's formed, it actually starts to become solidified, as it were, or starts to fix in a certain direction. Now, not initially, but once it's become fixed, you have actually developed character. And so if someone through repeated evil choice, has developed an evil character, they actually become set in it to the point where they are no longer capable of choosing good. And so in this one, God actually allows a period of probation for when things have gone wrong. Um, So the capacity to freely choose is not, between good and evil, is not endless. And as a result, of course, God will actually, um, he will step in at some stage and um, and things. There's a couple of other things that, that constrain our freedom. Um, God's activity, the, the non-coercive to- uh, kind. God persuades or he, 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 without, short of forcing us, he's con- constantly seeking to influence people to good. And so he's, he's creating limits on, on our choice um, in, a, in a good way. Our original constitution and ability, you know, limits us. Previous decisions we've made limit us. That's, if you decided to be here, you know what, you, you, can't, you can't be on the other side of Melbourne. It's impossible. So your decisions close down options. That's not a bad thing. That's just nature of reality. Other free agents push constraints on us, you know. And um, actually prayer does. It allows God to act in a certain way and in, in, in a good way. So... Um, these these things, um, I, I found these really helpful, right? Placed in, in a warfare um, environment. Now, what this means, though, is we can start to give a general explanation for pain and suffering in the world, but we can actually never give a specific explanation, which is pretty important to realize. Um, so beware of trying to explain if someone comes to you and they've experienced pain or suffering and you, you try and explain all this, you, you, you can't tell them specifically why something has happened in their life. So, for example, um, why did that child die in Sierra Leone from the Ebola virus a couple of months ago? I, I have no idea why. I cannot tell you. And if something has just happened in your life which is terrible or your friends or your family, I can't tell you why it has happened. Okay, now quickly, I'm just going to look at um, the other element of this war, and that's the moral controversy part, which is really crucial. And um, I might go a bit over time. I'm trying to get through this, because it's the afternoon, and I'm amazed at you guys. You're still awake. Um, Okay, 
And what it is, is not just that there's a freedom of choice gone wrong, not just that there's a conflict, okay, on all these levels. There's a controversy, a moral controversy. Now, the best insight we have is the very first time the opponent of God speaks in Scripture. And you've got to, this is an echo of what he originally said in heaven. And you can even see a bit of the verbal echo, and maybe I'll point it out. But, you see, what has happened is, it's not just a war, there's a philosophical, it's like a political, ideological controversy between God and Satan. Not just, not just a rivalry. And what this means is, um, he has ideas that are spreadable, that other creatures believe, and sustain them in their rebellion against God. And this is why the, the war goes on and on. It's not just an issue of force. God cannot end the conflict merely by a show of force. And I'll, I'll, I'll show why. But look what um, the, the serpent here says. Uh, first he asks the question, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So he calls in the question. He's leading on. He's just trying to get her to talk because he's about to, to, to put a little meme, an idea in her head. This idea will change everything. And come down the bottom. But the servant said to the woman, you will not surely die. Because she says, oh, yeah, this tree, we can't touch it. We can't eat of it. Others will die. For, and it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? Very important, that phrase. Uh, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, you'll be like God. Remember his initial rebellion was, I want to be like God. That's a bit of an echo there. But um, what is happening here? This is his first deception. And what he does is he raises questions right, about God's character, God's government, and God's law. And he's saying, you know what? Um, God is not all you think he is. He's actually a little unfair. He's a little jealous, to be honest. And he's actually holding you back. That's why he doesn't want you to touch this. God's a little bit selfish, but I want to help you. In fact, if you take this, you will actually enter in a whole new level of existence. You will actually become like God. So notice he's presenting himself as an agent of freedom and God as the God of restriction. And um, now that, that phrase, the, knowledge of true, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it's God himself says, this is what the tree is. What does that mean? That's actually a mystery to a lot of people. Now, um, there's, there's a whole study in this well, I won't get into. But basically, this is what it means. God is saying, I give you everything. Without exception, the whole world is yours. Everything is yours. There's one thing that's mine. Only one thing that's mine. That's the knowledge of good and evil. I define what is good and evil. You have to trust me on this one thing. You must never um, try and take this to yourself. You must allow me to set the moral order. And, and everything, God's basically saying, everything is built on this. That I will give the whole of creation to you, but you just trust me and allow me to determine what is right and wrong. I'm the only one who can do it. And... Um, this is the thing that the serpent says, no, no, no. This is the problem. The, God's moral order is the problem. Him trying to restrict you from actually taking that. Hey, I'll define good and evil for myself. I'll actually make the law. 
that is wrong. He's restrictive. And he doesn't want you to do that. And this is actually the moral controversy. And here's the thing. A question that is asked can never be unasked. I don't know if you've experienced this. It's dangerous. So maybe you, um, maybe you were going out with someone and it was blissful. And then someone said, you know what? Um, does he or she really love you? If that question has been asked, you cannot ask it. It's been asked. And you have to tackle it. And maybe they even say, well, because I saw this and this and I heard this. You can't go, oh, no, I haven't heard that question. Now, this is exactly what Satan did. He asked a question that could not be unasked. God has to tackle it, but he can't use force. If he uses force, what does he do? He confirms everything the serpent said. So, there's human freedom. There is a, a multi-dimensional conflict which engulfs, engulfs all of us on multiple levels, so it's a highly confusing environment to be in. And there's a moral controversy that is happening. So God cannot just end things quickly. He has to deal with all of this. He has to dig down and, I mean, really dig down and show that what this, the serpent has said is not true. This takes time. And so for the sake of winning over the free creatures who are currently choosing evil, that is you and I, God must per- permit evil, give it a period of existence, and then he must, uh, under, he must do an extraordinary thing actually to resolve this. Okay, this, this, sorry, I'm probably really pushing the time. I want to show you one more thing, very important to this whole idea of cosmic warfare. And it's um, a quote here. Okay. It's about the mystery of evil. How did a perfect creature choose evil? How is it possible if, if, if Satan or this Lucifer was perfect? And remember, all the other theologies try and explain evil for you. But I think this is actually key. Listen to this especially at the top, will go, um, it is impossible to explain the origin of sin so as to give a reason for its existence. Yet enough may be understood concerning both the origin and the final disposition of sin to make fully manifest the justice and benevolence of God in all his dealings with evil. Nothing is more plainly taught in Scripture that God is in no wise responsible for the entrance of sin, that there was no arbitrary withdrawal of divine grace, no deficiency in the divine government that gave occasion for the uprising of rebellion. And here it is. Sin is an intruder for whose presence no reason can be given. It is mysterious, unaccountable. To excuse it is to defend it. One could excuse be found for it or cause be shown for its existence. It would cease to be sin. Okay, this is where all the other explanations for pain and suffering go wrong. They try to explain what is unexplainable. And this is why the, the warfare one, what I'm talking about, is different because... Um, what it does, it doesn't say, oh, God's done, allowed reason, evil for this reason or this reason, so there's a good purpose and um, evil's achieving a greater good or whatever. No, it says God fights sin because it's unjustified. He fights it. The ex- you don't try and explain evil. Fight it. Fight it. And, um, yeah, oh, look, I'll, I'll, I'll finish up there. And uh, the next talk, 
I'll just look at a bit of a response by God. And um, hopefully I haven't overwhelmed you too much. Thank you for listening. Afternoon. Thank you for the message, Anthony. Something definitely to think about and chew on. Um, whenever my professor would say something profound, he would say, put that into your intellectual pipe and smoke it. So anyway, as a pastor of the church, you have my permission to smoke something, those thoughts. <clears throat> this song is called If I Were. Uh, it's by a guy named Andy Gullihorn. And um, yeah, as you think about these words and think about the message, I hope it'll help internalize um, some of the things that have been shared. the devil I wouldn't wear red I wouldn't have horns or a pitchfork I wouldn't breathe fire cause it might give me away If I were the devil you'd never know I'd befriend you quick and corrupt you slow so you don't notice until it's far too late If I were the devil If I were the devil if I were the devil, I'd spend all day Lowering standards of what's okay To think, to say, to watch on your TV There's no, no the value of promises kept Fade down through till there's nothing left Of gossiping lies popping up as thick as weeds If I were the devil If I were the devil I might not be as foreign as you think I wouldn't only show my evil side I got the time and patience just to wait To steal your soul just once and at a time Like I would if I But if I was, I'd take God's people and split them up To keep their minds off who they're called to be So they're no longer fighting over living or dead Is it the body or just spread While all the unfed die hungry on the street If I were the devil If I were the devil not be as foreign as you think Cause I wouldn't only show my evil side I got the time and patience just to wait To steal your soul just once and at a time Like I would If I were Make moms and dads and never stick around Pain so bad you have to drink to drown And get so I can kick 
If I were the devil, I wouldn't wear red. I wouldn't breathe fire, cause it might give me away. about to have a, a bit of a break, but I'll just say a prayer before we do. Lord, I, I just ask that you'd bring home the reality of um, the conflict that's all around us. And as we go into the next talk, just how we can be part of your, you and your side. And just um, teach us this, open our eyes, Lord, to the truth in your name. Amen.